The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 109. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. Do not keep silent, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers, but I give myself to prayer. Thus they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Set a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children continually be vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also from their desolate places. Let the creditor seize all that he has and let strangers plunder his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy to him, nor let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off, and in the generation following, let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be continually before the Lord, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth, because he did not remember to show mercy but persecuted the poor and needy man, that he might even slay the broken in heart. As he loved cursing, so let it come to him. And as he did not delight in blessing, so let it be far from him. As he clothed himself with cursing as with his garment, so let it enter his body like water and like oil into his bones. Let it be to him like the garment which covers him and for a belt with which he girds himself continually. Let this be the Lord's reward to my accusers and to those who speak evil against my person. But you, O God the Lord, deal with me for your name's sake, because your mercy is good. Deliver me, for I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I am gone like a shadow when it lengthens. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting, and my flesh is feeble from lack of fatness. I also have become a reproach to them. When they look at me, they shake their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. Oh, save me according to your mercy, that they may know that this is your hand, that you, Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you bless. When they arise, let them be ashamed, but let your servant rejoice. Let my accusers be clothed with shame and let them cover themselves with their own disgrace as with a mantle. I will greatly Praise the Lord with my mouth. Yes, I will praise him among the multitude, for he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those who condemn him. Today we are in Joshua 24, 29 through 33. This is entitled Joshua, the son of Nun. This is our final sermon in the book of Joshua. I hope it's been a blessing to you. Um, we're going to get into the book of Judges immediately after this, and I'm up to chapter 3, 
and I've enjoyed so far each of the passages that I've typed. Joshua 3, 1 through 11 this past week had some very obscure Hebrew. I can't wait to see if, uh, what's that? Oh, Judges, thank you, Judges 3, 1 through 11. And I cannot wait to see if I can figure out the typology next week. It's still going to be great, even if I can't, but I got to tell you what, it's just, it's so interesting. Uh, it's the story of Ehud, the, uh, the judge that goes in and stabs Eglon, the big fat guy, and yes. the, his fat covers up the blade. And yeah. it's very obscure Hebrew in the second part of those verses. And then next week we'll finish those up. I'm just so excited about it, but I'm also excited about the book of Joshua, and I'm going to miss it. It just, it's been such a great book. Um, one more thing. I know this has nothing to do with the Bible, except that they are in the Bible. Did anybody here try the figs today? Yes. Yeah. Were they good? Yeah. Oh, good. You know, they were two for one. I, they've been in there for a couple weeks, and finally, they, they, when there's the big harvest season, they finally start giving two for one, and so I bought them. I can't wait to try them. And no, you didn't eat them all because I got some for Hedico in the refrigerator. So just in case you ate them all, I, I just can't wait. I've been waiting for them to get down to the, where they start sending a lot and they can afford to do the two-for-one thing. So yes, figs are in the Bible, so that wasn't anything superfluous. Okay, we're in Joshua 24, starting in verse 29. Now it came to pass after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath Sarah, which is in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gaash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. The bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem in the plot of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver, and which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died. They buried him in a hill belonging to Phinehas, his son, which was given to him in the mountains of Ephraim. I don't know if you remember how we closed out both um, Numbers and Deuteronomy, but in those sermons, pretty much every single word pointed to Jesus in one way or another. And we'll see if that happens today or not. Apart from the clear connection to Jesus that runs throughout the book of Joshua, there is one main theme that has been repeatedly seen in the typology of this book. There have been innumerable things pictured in Joshua from national Israel's future salvation to the rapture of the church to salvation by grace through faith, how inheritances are secured, the introduction of the new covenant, and so forth. But all of these things are dependent on one major aspect of what Christ has done, all of it. We have seen the death of Christ, his resurrection and exaltation to God's right hand, and more. But what is the one thing that all of these things are ultimately focused on? More than that, what will be the result of it coming about? If you are not sure, consider Paul's writings. What does Paul focus on above all other points of doctrine? Hint, nearly the entire book of Galatians and a majority of the book of Romans focuses on it. Only a few of his books don't explicitly refer to it. What is it? He speaks of it in our text verse today from Romans 3. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of 
faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from deeds of the law. It is such an important point that the very first words ever spoken to man as recorded in the Bible to the very last words of scripture are focused on this issue. The first words ever spoken to man, Genesis 2.16, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And then from Revelation 22, verse 21, the last words of scripture, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. One can choose law or grace. This is what Joshua has most heavily focused on, and there is a reason for this. The glory of God is not displayed in man's observance of the law. It is seen in those who trust in him apart from their own merit. God gave mankind law. Man failed, and death was the result. Without the coming of Jesus to fulfill the law, nothing else, and I mean nothing else in human history, would have any eternal value at all. This is the lesson of Joshua and of the Bible, the law or grace. We can choose one or the other, but we cannot have both and be pleasing to God except as the law is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Joshua has shown this. Today, a brief summary of it will be seen once again in the book as it closes out. Jesus, his coming and his perfection. This is what the Bible is about. It is his work that is highlighted. God came to dwell among us and to remove the burden of law from us. The devil wants nothing more than for you to stay under the law and try to work your way to heaven. And when I say law, I mean either the law of Adam or if you were a Jew under the law of Moses, the law of Moses. It doesn't matter. You're under law. Don't let him trick you. Christ has gone before us. Let us trust wholly and completely in what he has done. This wonderful truth is seen in Joshua and indeed is to be found throughout God's superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again and may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is 110 years old. It's verses 29 through 33. Now it came to pass after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died. And it was after the words, thee, these, and died, Joshua, son of Nun, servant of Jehovah. Joshua means the Lord is salvation. Nun means increase. This is the tenth and final time in the book of Joshua that this full name, Joshua the son of Nun, is used. How do I know that? Because I counted, just to make sure. Bollinger says that ten is one of the perfect numbers and signifies the perfection of divine order, commencing as it does an altogether new series of numbers. The first decade is the representative of the whole numeral system and originates the system of calculation called decimals, because the whole system of numeration consists of so many tens, of which the first is a type of the whole. He then says of it, completeness of order, marking the entire round of anything, is, therefore, the ever-present signification of the number ten. It implies that nothing is wanting, that the number and order are perfect, that the whole cycle is complete. 
Scripture does not give a date concerning when Joshua called the tribes together at Shechem, nor are we told how long after that occurred that Joshua died, whether it was a week or a year later. What is noted is that this gathering was the last recorded moment of Joshua's life. At Shechem, the Lord, through him, had faithfully reminded the people of their original calling through their father, Abraham, demonstrating that it was an act of grace. He noted the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a granting that came without merit on their part. He reminded them of their sojourn in Egypt and of the Lord's deeds on their behalf. He had defeated Pharaoh and his army, the Amorites on both sides of the Jordan, and he had given them a land for which they did not labor and cities which they did not build. The land was filled with vineyards and olive groves upon their arrival. Everything came apart from Israel's merit, all of it. Instead, it was all grace bestowed upon them. After the Lord reminded them of these things, Joshua asked the people to choose whom they would serve, noting that he and his household would serve the Lord. The people likewise agreed to serve the Lord, noting that it was he who had done all of the great things for them, restating some of those deeds and repeatedly stating that he was the one whom they would serve. He had proven himself faithful, and so they vowed to faithfully serve him. After that, it said, But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. The words of Joshua were unlike the closing words of Moses. Moses blessed the individual tribes, and then it said, So Moses came with Joshua the son of Nun and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. Moses finished speaking all these words to all Israel, and he said to them, Set your hearts on the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe all the words of this law. For it is not a futile thing for you, because it is your life. And by this word you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. Where Moses proclaimed the law was their life, Joshua never directly mentioned the law. Rather, he focused his words on forsaking the Lord through the service of other gods. Sin would result in turning from the Lord. You can see the difference. If a person remains faithful to the Lord, there is forgiveness, even for committed sin. David had Uriah killed and took his wife, and yet the Lord forgave him because his heart was set on the Lord. However, in forsaking the Lord and turning to other gods, there is no forgiveness of transgressions and sins. Such a person cuts himself off from the only source of life. As for Joshua, he has been used as a type of Christ Jesus, the one who fulfills the will of the Lord. That was seen back in Joshua 11 with these words. As the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua. And so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. After Joshua completed these things, the land was divided according to the inheritance. Now think of the picture. Joshua is a picture of Jesus with the law. He fulfilled everything according to the word of the Lord. Law done. Inheritance received. Likewise, Jesus fulfilled the word of the Lord. Through him, the inheritance is received. This included those who received their inheritance by Moses. Despite the eastern tribes being granted their inheritance, conditionally, 
it still was not realized until after Joshua had completed the campaign for Canaan. The same is true with Jesus. The Old Testament saints do not receive any actual inheritance until after Jesus returns. That was seen in Joshua 22. Everything in Joshua has played out according to a greater plan of redemption found in Christ Jesus. Joshua has anticipated Jesus as the leader who goes before his people, clearing the way for them to receive their inheritance. With his typological role in this unfolding drama complete, it notes that he died. Verse 29 continues, being 110 years old. Ben Me'ah Va'eshur Shanim, son, 110 years. This is 10 years less than Moses, which is recorded in Deuteronomy 34, 7, and the same age as Joseph when he died in Genesis 50, 26, from whom he descended. 110 is the product of 10 times 11. The meaning of 10 was previously given. Of 11, Bollinger says, if 10 is the number which marks the perfection of divine order, then 11 is an addition to it, subversive of and undoing that order. If 12 is the number which marks perfection of divine government, then 11 falls short of it. So that whether we regard it as being 10 plus 1 or 12 minus 1, it is the number which marks disorder, disorganization, imperfection, and disintegration. Like Joseph, who died at this age, there is in these men a perfection of divine order marked with a state of imperfection. The two men were types of Christ in their lives, meaning they anticipate his coming. That's why I went back and tried to figure out how many times is Joshua, the son of Nun, recorded in this book, because I wanted to know if it was going to make a picture, and it did. The perfection of divine order, he pictures Jesus, the increaser. And yet, these two men were only types of Christ. God used these fallen men to typologically look ahead to the perfection seen in Jesus. As for the death of Joshua, it next says, verse 30, And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at timnath Sarah. Va'yikberu oto bigvul nachalato betimnath Sarah. And they buried him in border, his inheritance, in timnath Sarah. The meaning is that he was buried in his own land given to him according to Joshua 19. We saw this a few weeks ago when they had made an end of dividing the land as an inheritance. According to their borders, the children of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. According to the word of the Lord, they gave him the city which he asked for, Timnath Sarah, in the mountains of Ephraim, and he built the city and dwelt in it. Timnath Sarah means extra portion. It next says, verse 30 continues, which is in the mountains of Ephraim. Asher Behar Ephraim, which in Mount Ephraim. As seen previously, a mountain, a har, is a lot of something gathered. It is synonymous with a large but centralized group of people. Ephraim means twice fruitful with the secondary meaning of ashes. Before I go on, while we were having our break, good food and figs and all that, somebody asked me about the etymology of words and where I get the information and so on. I get it, a lot of it from Abarim publications, and that includes the analysis of what a mountain is. So that's just so you know where I get my information. If you want to know where I got 
why is a mountain something gathered together and not something high? It's because that is the way that they have analyzed that throughout the Bible and come to that conclusion. Okay. I don't always agree with Abarim, but in that case, you think it through and you say, that is absolutely what is correct. And then you find out that it matches typology as well. So, uh, as far as Ephraim, it means twice fruitful with the secondary meaning of ashes. And this is said to be, verse 30 continues, on the north side of Mount Ka'ash. Mitzvon lehar Ka'ash. From north to Mount Ka'ash. The word Safon, north, signifies that which is hidden or treasured away because the north receives less light in the northern hemisphere. Strong's notes the name Ga'ash comes from the verb Ga'ash, to shake or to quake. Thus, it means something like a shaking or a quaking. And every time while I was practicing this sermon, I came to that. It made me think of my grandfather because he was anybody? A Quaker. A Quaker. It cannot go unnoted that the Greek and Arabic translations of this verse include the following. There they put with him into the tomb in which they buried him the knives of stone with which he circumcised the children of Israel in Galgala when he brought them out of Egypt as the Lord appointed them. And they are there to this day. Now that's not in the Hebrew text. And you have to say, where would that come from? Either the words are original and the Hebrew intentionally dropped them or they are not original. And for some reason, the translators of the Septuagint decided it was necessary to include them. If original, it could be that the Hebrew dropped them out because of the words, when he brought them out of Egypt. This is my speculation on this. That would appear to be contradictory to what it says elsewhere about Moses being the one to bring them out of Egypt, right? You got a contradiction. Joshua didn't bring them out of Egypt. But that is no excuse for removing the words. There would be nothing contradictory about it. The reason is because of how the Hebrew is worded elsewhere. In Joshua 5, 5, for example, it said, For circumcised were all the people, the comers out, and all the people, the born in the wilderness, in the way, in their coming out from Egypt, no circumcised. It isn't that they came out of Egypt and were no longer coming out of Egypt. The entire process from Exodus until they arrived safely in Canaan is considered as a part of the coming out of Egypt. Does everybody see that now? So Moses brought them out, Joshua brought them out, and somebody else did as well. Until they entered Canaan, they were on their way out of Egypt. Thus, there is no contradiction in saying that Moses brought them out. Joshua brought them out, and also that the Lord brought them out. Also, Judges 2, 6 through 9 closely matches the words recorded here in Joshua, but they do not include the extra words. It could be that the scribes of the Hebrew text, along with thinking there was a contradiction, also thought because Judges 2 was of sufficient detail, then the words were also not necessary here. This is all speculation on my part, but I want you to know these differences and why. If the words are not original, it is hard to imagine why the Septuagint, as well as the Arabic writers, would include them. They are otherwise so arbitrary that it seems impossible that someone would make them up and insert them into their translation. Verse 31, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Va'ya'avod Yisrael et Yehovah kol yamei Yehoshua, and served Israel, Yehovah, all days Joshua. It is a note of faithfulness to the Lord because of the leader. Throughout the times of the judges and kings, it will be seen that the people remain faithful when the leader is faithful to the Lord. 
Likewise, the people will fall away from the Lord when the king is unfaithful. If you're not sure about that, you should have been in my truck for the past couple of weeks. I'm in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and now I'm in 1 Chronicles, and that's all you see. The leader turns away from the Lord, Israel turns away. The leader turns back, Israel turns back again and again and again. Verse 31 continues, And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. And all the days the elders who prolonged days after Joshua. Of these words, Ellicott mistakenly says that the prolonging of the days of the elders, here's his words, seems to suggest that Joshua's death was comparatively an early death. He had thought and labored more for himself and less for Israel. He also might have prolonged his days. It needs to be remembered that Joshua came out of Egypt as an adult. Other than he and Caleb, every other person who entered Canaan was under 20 at the exodus from Egypt. Thus, they all were younger than Joshua. Although their lives didn't go much beyond Joshua's, the people had already begun to apostatize by Judges too. I had my editor bring me the Judges 2 sermon yesterday at the projects, and she said, I could tell you were depressed because of the way that I was typing it. She's got like 8 million corrections for me to not depress you. It's very depressing reading the the beginning of the book of Judges, right after the victories of Joshua, and what happens? Reuben didn't obey the Lord. Gad didn't obey the Lord. Oh, down the line, one after another after another. And that day I emailed Sergio and I said, Sergio, I'm so depressed right now. The human nature that is being revealed in this book, it's like looking in the mirror for each one of us if we're willing to accept it. The people had already begun to apostatize by Judges 2. They made covenants with the inhabitants of the land. And by Judges 2.11, they were worshiping the balls and other gods. But even if that is considered a general summary, Joshua 3 specifically notes this. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushon Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, and the children of Israel served Cushon Rishathaim eight years. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. Othniel, Caleb's younger brother, was the first judge of Israel, and yet by the time he became judge, the people had departed from the Lord. Thus, it was a very short time after Joshua's death that these things began to take place. However, for a short time, the people served the Lord under the elders. Verse 31 continues, who had known all the works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. It is singular. And who knew all work Jehovah which had done to Israel. Everything the Lord had accomplished is summed up as one great act on behalf of the nation. The Israelites, though under 20 at the Exodus, had seen everything that the Lord had done and were fully aware of the consequences for rejecting such knowledge, having personally seen every person older than them perish at the word of the Lord through the years of wilderness wanderings, all of them. With that, 
the next words are given as a confirmation that the promise of the children of Israel to Joseph was fulfilled in its due time. Verse 32, the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem. Ve'et atzmot Yosef asher he'elu b'nei Yisrael mi-Mitzrayim kaberu bishchem. And bones Joseph, which had ascended sons Israel from Egypt, buried in Shechem. Nothing is said as to when Joseph's burial took place. It could have been as soon as the land was conquered, at some point afterwards, or even at the calling of the people to Shechem at the beginning of chapter 24. The stating of it here is a note of closure, showing the fulfillment of an oath, regardless of when it actually took place. This oath is recorded in Genesis 50, about 200 years earlier. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. In Acts 7, Stephen notes that not only were the bones of Joseph brought up, but so were the bones of the other fathers as well. However, the text here is only concerned with the fulfillment of the oath made by the sons of Israel. The actual removal of Joseph's bones is recorded in Exodus 13, verse 19. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. Joseph means both he shall add and take away. Egypt means double trouble. Shechem is identical to the word Shechem, meaning shoulder. Thus, it literally means shoulder. However, that comes from Shechem, signifying to incline, as inclining to a burden. Hence, it is normally translated as to rise or start early. Abarim defines Shechem as responsibility, but especially having a sense of responsibility, like getting up early and doing your job. Joseph was buried in Shechem, verse 32 continues, in the plot of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Be'chelkat asher kana Yaakov me'et bene Hamor avi Shechem. In parcel the field which acquired Jacob from sons Hamor, father Shechem. Jacob has several meanings that all point to his birth when he grabbed Esau's heel. It literally means heel catcher, but that also has several independent meanings, such as supplanter. You know, you trip somebody up and then you take his place, or one who trips up, grab his heel and down he goes. One closely following because you're holding on to his heel, and so on. Each is tied into the thought of grabbing the heel of another. Hamor means donkey. But that comes from the verb hamar, to be red, so it also means red one. The land was bought, verse 32 continues, for 100 pieces of silver. Be'me'a kesita, in hundred kesita. The kesita comes from an unused root, probably meaning to weigh out. Hence, it is a specific weight probably like an ingot or a particular sized coin. The transaction is recorded in Genesis 30, verses 18 through 20. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city. And he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor. 
Shechem's father for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohe Yisrael. In weighing out the money, the transfer was made. Verse 32 continues, and which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph. And became to sons Joseph two inheritance. The granting of the land to Joseph is recorded in Genesis 48. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. With that, we come to the final verse of the book of Joshua. Verse 33, And Eliezer the son of Aaron died. Eliezer, whom God helps, was the second high priest of Israel. Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eliezer his son, and Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eliezer came down from the mountain. Now when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, all the house of Israel mourned for Aaron 30 days. Verse 33 continues, They buried him in a hill belonging to Phinehas his son. The Hebrew is more precise. Ve'yikberu oto be'givat pinchas beno and buried him in hill Phinehas his son. The JPS Tanakh translates it as the hill of Phineas. The SLT gives the same idea while leaving the Hebrew untranslated. It says, in Gibeah of Phineas. Due to the shortness of the Hebrew, it seems correct to say Gebat Pinchas, or Phineas Hill. As has been seen several times in Joshua, the word translated as hill comes from a root that is etymologically connected to Gabatha in the New Testament. Regardless of the translation, this is the connection that we are being asked to make. The name Pinchas, or Phineas, means mouth of brass, and thus mouth of judgment, because brass in the Bible signifies, anybody? Judgment! judgment. With this noted, the verse, the chapter, and the book of Joshua finish with verse 33, which was given to him in the mountains of Ephraim. Asher Nitan lo Behar Ephraim, which was given to him in Mount Ephraim. Eliezer is buried in the same tribal land grant as that of Joshua. Of this, Ellicott rightly says, the inheritance of Phineas as a priest would lie within the tribe of Judah, Joshua 21, 13, and so on, or Benjamin. This gift to Phineas in Mount Ephraim, near the seat of government, seems to have been a special grant to him over and above his inheritance. But inasmuch as the tabernacle itself was at Shiloh in Mount Ephraim, it was altogether suitable and natural that some place of abode should be assigned to the priests in that neighborhood where they were compelled to reside. The Greek translation adds several sentences more at the end of Joshua that seem unlikely to be original, even if they may be historically accurate to some measure. With that noted, the book of Joshua has come to its end. Be strong and of good courage, I am with you. Fear not and be not dismayed. Others may depart, but I am faithful and true. It is I who have all your debts paid. I will bring you into the inheritance, and there I will place you forever. Of me failing, there is not a chance. Nothing can the bond between us sever. Be strong and of good courage. Trust in me. Fear not and be not dismayed. I am with you. The word I have spoken, so shall it be. I am the Lord your God, faithful and true. Our second thought today is pictures of Christ. 
to close out the book of Joshua, these final five verses have been affixed to the lengthy discourse that preceded them. The first thing noted in verse 29 was the death of Joshua, the son of Nun. As noted, this was the tenth and final time that his full name was given. The ten instances are given to show the perfection of divine order concerning types of Christ. Nothing is wanting. The number and order are perfect. The whole cycle is complete. Everything that needs to be seen in the typology of Joshua, the man, concerning Jesus is sufficiently revealed. Joshua, the Lord is salvation. The son of Nun, increase, died. He is here called Eved Yehovah, servant of Yehovah, the same as Moses was called at his death. That is given as a type of Christ. Isaiah 52, 13, Behold, my servant Abdi shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And then from Acts 3:13, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up, and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. He is glorified. Including the Father's name, Nun, is as before given to reveal that Jesus is the one who increases the family of God by including both Jews and Gentiles. That is seen in Isaiah 49. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant, my Eved, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. The next words of note were the age of Joshua at his death, 110 years. Being only a type of Christ, there is a note of imperfection to be found. This is the product of 10 times 11. It reveals that the whole cycle is complete, but the imperfection of him as a man, Joshua, as a son of Adam, who bore his own original sin, is included. Verse 30 noted the burial of Joshua in Timnath-serah, extra portion. It speaks of the full scope of Christ's work, as was noted in Isaiah 49, verse 6. His work includes not only Israel, but the Gentiles as well, making the effect of it the extra portion. After that, the text continued saying, which is in Mount Ephraim. Saying this was in the Mount or Har points to the effect of his work. The mountain being synonymous with a large but centralized group of people. It refers to the uniting of all believers, Jews and Gentiles as one in Christ. Noting Ephraim points to the same truth again. Ephraim means twice fruitful. It signifies that Christ's work has produced fruit in the conversion of both Jews and Gentiles. The secondary meaning of ashes speaks of the price that he paid to make this possible, which was the afflictions that he endured. Still, in verse 30, it noted that the location was from north to Malkaash. In scripture, Tzaphon, or north, signifies that which is hidden or treasured away because the north receives less light in the northern hemisphere. It speaks of those who are hidden with Christ in God. That's Colossians 3, verse 3. If Timnasarah signifies those redeemed by Christ and the north signifies that they are hidden in Christ, then Mount Gaash, Mount Shaking, would signify what is not hidden in Christ and what has been separated from him. This is seen in Hebrews 12. It says there, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him, who spoke on earth, 
Much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. As noted, the Greek and Arabic translations of verse 30 include the words concerning the stone knives used to circumcise the people in Gilgal being buried in the tomb with Joshua. If original, and I would think they are, but who knows, if original, it would signify that it is only through the death of Christ that the nation of Israel will be truly circumcised. To understand that, you can revisit the sermons from Joshua chapter 5. Verse 32 mentioned Joseph. Placing this at the end of Joshua is given for typology as well. Joseph, he shall add and take away, is given to reveal the work of Christ once again. He is the one to add people to God's flock, having taken away their reproach. Naming Egypt, doubled trouble, indicates those brought out from the predicament that they were in, meaning fallen and without God. Noting Shechem, having a sense of responsibility, looks to the believer who understands his violation of the law and has accepted Christ's fulfillment of it. This is then reconfirmed in the words that Joseph was buried in the field which acquired Jacob from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Jacob pictures Christ, the one who follows after or supplants Adam. The field represents the world, as in Matthew 13, 38. It is an open place of productivity. Hamor, red one, pictures Adam, the man made from the red soil of the earth, which the name Adam implies. Adam, ruddy, comes from Adom, meaning to be red. Jacob, Christ the second man, the last Adam, as noted in 1 Corinthians 15, purchased the field, meaning the world, from the sons of Hamor, the red one, Adam, for those who accept his work, Shechem. This was for 100 kesita, 10 times 10. In the amount, Bollinger notes that nothing is wanting, that the number and order are perfect, that the whole cycle is complete. The perfection of divine order is realized in the work of Christ. It was then said that this field had become the inheritance of the children of Joseph. It speaks of the secured and eternal inheritance for those in Christ. Verse 32, the last verse of the book, then mentioned the death of Eliezer, whom God helps, the son of very high, who is buried in Givat Pinchas, which is in Mount Ephraim. It again anticipates the work of Christ. He is the one whom God helps. Psalm 70, but I am poor and needy. Make haste to me, O God. You are my help, my Ezri, and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. Jesus is the Son of the Most High, Luke 8, 28. He received the mouth of judgment at Gabbatha, which is in Mount Ephraim. That gives the same symbolism just explained when it noted Joshua's burial. Every name and location in these final five verses of Joshua points to various manifestations of Christ, his work, or its effects in relation to his people. Therefore, 
The point is to once again highlight the scope of the work of Christ and also to reiterate to Israel their future national salvation based on the work of Christ. But they must hold fast to him in that capacity as a nation as well. The work of Christ was effective for the salvation of individual Jews and Gentiles, but it is also effective for the collective nation of Israel as well. And yet, in their national salvation, they must remember that each individual is responsible to the Lord personally. We talked about that last week. It is not unlike the church. Christ is the Savior of the church, but each person has an individual choice to make to become a member of it. As for the law versus grace, Christ is the embodiment and the fulfillment of the law. The only way to enter God's presence is by receiving the grace of God in Christ, who died in fulfillment of that law. No other point has been so significantly highlighted in this book. One account after another has shown this. The death of Moses outside of the promise. The faith of Rahav, the crossing through the Jordan, meaning the death of Christ with the ark, Christ the embodiment of the law. In view of the people, the raising of the stone monuments, the circumcision of the people after crossing through the descender, meaning Christ, the ending of the manna at that time, the destruction of Jericho, the sin of Achan, the defeat of Ai, and the hanging of its king, meaning the law, the building of the altar at Mount Ebal. The Treaty of the Gibeonites, the defeat of the five kings and their hanging, meaning the five books of Moses, to name a few. That is only a short snapshot of the first ten chapters of Joshua. And it continued on with this same theme again and again. Each story has revealed Jesus Christ, the world's need for him, the typological warnings that one cannot be saved by law but by grace, and so on. From the very first moments of man on earth, it is law that has brought calamity upon man. What we need is Jesus who frees us from the bondage of the law, be it the law of Adam or the more burdensome law of Moses. This has been the main theme of the book of Joshua. God in Christ has accomplished everything necessary to secure our salvation and free us from the burden of the law. In a right relationship with God, works are excluded except the works of God in Christ. When we return to Joshua in our reading of the Bible, let us remember this. He is the one to lead us into our inheritance. He is the one who has defeated the enemy. He is the one who will return to raise his people and bring them to himself. Jesus. The book of Joshua has been given to reveal Jesus. Thank God for Jesus Christ, who has made our restoration with him possible. Yes, thank God for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Oh, what an army, Lord, you'll have at your side. The weak, not the strong, will stand at your side. They rejected the lost, the poor, and the weak, those called by the world unsuccessful and meek. The needy, the sick, the guilty, the shamed, stained with imperfections, with sin in their veins. Those who, on their knees, were searching for the truth. Those will one day stand with you. Not many rich will be drawn to your side. Not many mighty in you will abide. Not many with knowledge and filled with success will look for you to be truly blessed. Oh, what an army, Lord, you'll have at your side. Those who brought you the cross will stand at your side. 
those hated by the world, yet loved by you, the strongest army ever, because their king is the truth. That was written by my friend Isabella Bednara on 20 May of 2023, and I've been saving it for this. What a beautiful poem, and what a wonderful way to end this book. We were talking on Thursday about the law of grace, and I asked the people, was anybody here or any Gentile ever outside of Israel, ever under the law of Moses? None. Not one human in human history ever was under the law of Moses. Now, I got another question for you. This is more difficult, maybe. <laughs> is any person who is not in the church a member of the church? No. You're either in the church because Christ died for you or you are not. Okay. Christ did the work and he brought you into the church. You were never, no Gentile ever was under the law of Moses ever. And yet we have Hebrew roots people tell us that you'll be pleasing to God if you don't eat pork. God could not care what is inside of your stomach. He does not care. We've got to be happier with you if you observe the Sabbath. God does not care what day of the week you worship. He says it explicitly in the New Testament from Paul's hand. Read Romans 14.5, read Colossians 2.16 and 17, etc. God doesn't care about those things. What God cares about is what you have done with his son, Jesus Christ. You were never under the law of Moses. No person ever outside of Israel. And those in Israel never observed the law of Moses to begin with. That's recorded very clearly because every person from the time of the giving of the law until the ending of the law in Christ's death, none of them are still alive, with the exception of Elijah, who was taken to heaven, but who will come back to die in fulfillment of not fulfilling the law, if that makes any sense at all, okay? <laughs> That's it. You were never under the law. You are a part of the church. Don't ever let anybody mar the grace of God in Jesus Christ in you. You are free from those things. You are not pleasing God by not eating pork, and you are not pleasing God by observing a Sabbath or any other precept of the law. Those people that tell you those things don't walk around with tzitzit hanging out of their garments at the four corners of their garments. They don't have a blue thread in the tzitzit, even if they do. They want to be showy, whatever. Don't listen to these people. They're harming all over the world the lives of sound Christians by saying you need to go back and do something you were never obligated to. Trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. The New Testament is written, read it, and do what it says. That's it. I'm talking about the New Covenant, not the New Testament like Jesus was fulfilling the law in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So we don't have to do that because it's fulfilled, right? John is the high Christology of Christ. It's a little different. It's not one of the synoptic gospels, but you get your doctrine from the epistles. Read them. It's the New Covenant in Christ's blood. It explains what we're to do. Do it. And if you have never called in Jesus Christ, if you have not received him as your savior, you are one of the people that is not in the church. You do not belong in the church. You have no part in the church and you will not go to heaven. That's all there is to it. Jesus was very clear when he said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the father, but through me. Please, Bow your knee to Jesus. Just simply say, I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you brought me back to this infinite, glorious God that I can never fellowship with. I believe that, and you will be saved. He did the work. He was buried. He died. I'm sorry. He rose again. He did the work, meaning he was crucified for your sins. He was buried. He rose again. 
That is the gospel. Don't add to it, and please don't mar grace. Our closing verse comes from Romans 3. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Next week is Judges 1, 1 through 8. The people want to know what's up. It's entitled, Judah shall go up. That'll be our first Judges sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who has defeated the enemy and who now offers his people rest. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Now, I forgot to do a question this week, and so while uh, Jim was talking, I got out my iPad, and I found a passage that I'm so happy I thought of this. Otherwise, we wouldn't have had something to challenge your brains today. Um, uh, And I know somebody will get this, so please raise your hands. Uh, Where is it? Um, Okay. Job is told by the Lord, he is the first of the ways of God. Who is he speaking of? Read it again. He is the first of the ways of God. Job is, remember, he's, Job is having something described to him. He's, he's gone out on a limb, and so the Lord appears to Job in a whirlwind, and he starts telling him about one particular issue. What is that one major issue? Creation. Creation. And what is the first of the ways of God? Jesus. No, he didn't get created. Bah, come on. No. He's talking to a son of Adam. Behemoth. The first of the... I can't believe you didn't get that. He is the first of the way. He's, he's describing creation to a human, and he's saying, look at behemoth. He is the first of the ways of God. God made this glorious thing, and yet he's nothing compared to the Lord. That's the whole point. Go back. Everybody has to read Job tonight. Don't go to bed until you've read the book of Job. I, I thought for sure I was going to get eight people that said behemoth. I mean, oh, boy. Okay. No Wawa for you this week. Gee, by the way, I want to tell you, we are not Jehovah's Witnesses here. We, Jesus was not a created being, okay? If you want to believe that, there's a kingdom hall down the road. I'm kidding, of course. I wasn't speaking of Jesus. I thought you were referring to the Colossians. He's the firstborn overall. Oh, no, 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 no. I was in Job, and that's why I had to give the, the creation. Th- it's okay. Don't worry. I'm not rebuking you. I'm, I'm just making a joke. Don't take it personally. Okay. I got a poem, a very short poem. It will be done. Okay. This is entitled Joshua, the son of Nun. I, I want to know if anybody online got this. And don't lie. Just tell me if you got it. Okay. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm going to look right now. I'm going to see if anybody got that because they post these things. And so I'll know. Let me see if anybody got it. And I don't know if I can get there quickly. I don't want to waste your whole day. Um, uh, hang on now. We're, oh, okay. Did anybody get it? Um, uh, is it still live? Uh, oh, wait. Um, hang on. When? I've read it many times, but my memory is a sieve. Um, oh, yeah. Somebody got it. Behemoth. Who, who did? There's another one. Dinosaur being Fortis. Good job. Who, uh, Fortis. Good job. Somebody got it. 
Uh, Fortis, I'm not going to send this to you unless you send me your an email with your address. But if you do and you have a Wawa in your town, I will send that to you. Okay, I normally won't do that because I don't want to get anybody mad at me. And maybe I, somebody else before Fortis did it and I didn't scroll back far enough. But if Fortis is the one and not somebody before him, send me an email with your address and I'll send you a Wawa. It's $10 or ooh, $25. That's worth an email. Okay, here we go. Joshua, the son of Nun. Now it came to pass after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, as we are told, he, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath Sarah, where he did reside, which is in the mountains of Ephraim on Mount Gash's north side. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua as well who had known all the works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. The bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem in the plot of ground, which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem for 100 pieces of silver, and which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph, as we have been taught. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron died. They buried him in a hill, a fitting place it would seem, belonging to Phinehas, his son, which was given to him in the mountains of Ephraim. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And Lord God, thank you for this wonderful book. Joshua, what a marvel to have studied it. Into every detail possible, we took a look. And to you, our thanks and praise we now submit. Hallelujah to Christ our Lord. Hallelujah for Joshua, a marvelous part of your superior word. Hallelujah and amen. Indeed, hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Joshua and thank you for Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of every type and picture given there. Thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ and it's in his beautiful, exalted name that we pray, amen. Did everybody enjoy the book of Joshua? I just, I, it's just so wonderful. Every time we, I almost want to cry at the end of these books because it's so precious what we have gone through, the, the sacred nature of this wonderful word. And then we're looking for another adventure. I mean, we got judges coming up, and well, you guys don't, unless you watch online, but um, uh, we'll see you in a month, and we'll be almost done with judges, I think, by then. So. <laughs> uh, 14 months for Joshua. 14 months, so a year and two months for, yeah, that, that would be about right. Wow. See, he keeps track of these things. I don't. I just, if somebody asked me a question, I got to go back and look at like the, uh, the date of the uh, sermon when it was posted on YouTube. And the reason why is because, you know, you put in a Microsoft Word document and then you change your computer or you, you know, have a, a crash and it changes all the dates to the current date. And so you don't know when it was writ originally written. So you got to go to YouTube. What a sorry way of living your life is relying on YouTube or Jim Dwyer. Much better. <laughs>